Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. The title of this message is called Lost and Found. If you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19, we've now made our way up to the 19th chapter of Luke. We're going to talk about lost and found. Several times during our vacation this past week and a half, my family found ourselves at the lost and found looking for items that we had left behind during our trip. Just the other day, I left the motel where I was staying at the Shepherds Conference without taking the power cord for my laptop that held my message for today. I spent yesterday at several stores looking for a replacement for the one I lost. However, could not find one until I went to Amazon and hopefully it'll be delivered here today. But you know, there is a joy. I guess Landon, you as well. Do you have this? We're just in this lost and found. It's just apropos that that was the title of the message. But you, as you and I know, is that there is a joy when we find something that's been lost, have we not? You know, there's something that we love, something we uh, spent some money for, and it's lost. We, we, we fret over, but then something is found. It just, there's just a, a joy, but dejection when we lose something. Three weeks ago, we read of Jesus healing a blind man, both physically by restoring his sight, he was blind, but also spiritually by opening up his dead eyes to recognize the identity of Jesus as Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God who was sent to redeem and rescue his people from their sins. And with his eyes now wide open, he proceeded to follow Jesus as a disciple and worship God, which is always the best sign of whether or not someone's truly been born again. And when he did that, in turn, that leads others to give praise to God as well. And so even our testimony, our our salvation is to lead others to glorify when they see the change in us. Now, as we continue now or move to chapter 19, Jesus has another divine appointment with another dead man who is able to climb a tree. So with that, in Luke chapter 19, let's read of this dead man who climbs trees. Verse 1 of Luke 19. Again, it's going to be on the screen, the first four verses. But again, I want to encourage you. Let me just take a moment, just being at Shepherd's Conference again. One of the things that just, uh, just encouraged me is that when the pastor would speak and say, turn, you could hear the pages. And what struck me once is I was watching the pastor and he said, and look down at this verse and all of a sudden, 5,000 men at one hand, boom, The faces went down and you can see, I want to encourage you, get a Bible. If you need one, let me know. Grab some pencils, grab some things, write in your Bible, take notes. I think there's something special about having a a copy of God's hand. I know if if you have a a tablet or something, you can do many of those things though. So please do that as well. But I want to encourage you, grab a copy of God's word in some type of form that you can write in, that you can hold notes and and that becomes, becomes precious to you. So with that, I want to encourage you, if you do not have one, at the end of the service, let us know, and, and Randy and I will make sure you can have one. But Jesus, Luke is writing here about Jesus and says that Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. This is not going to be a short message, by the way, just so you know. 
Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he is about to pass that way. Father, thank you for this story of Zacchaeus. He just has one short passage in the scripture about him. A man who is dead, a man who is a thief, a man who is despised, but yet he is encaptured here for all time in scripture. And he's here for, for our prophet. And so I thank you for this word. I thank you for Luke and his re- faithful recording and orderly account that we may read it, that we may rejoice, that we may learn of the, of the, uh, of the Lord's work on our behalf. Father, I pray that your spirit would have free reign. And Father, that you would just work in our hearts as you would see fit to your glory and for our good. In your name we pray, amen. Now I want to make some observation. That first one is, is, is the mention by Luke, and you might have just passed over it because that's what it says. It says that Jesus was passing through Jericho. Just a quick phrase. I don't know, but that, there, there's an important phrase there. He's passing through. He's not intending to stop. This is important only to point out that Jesus, again, as I'm being redundant, has divine engagement in Jerusalem. Very soon he will be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders who are scheming to put him to death. Of course, Jesus is aware of their plans. And instead of running in fear or hiding out or trying to sneak into the city, unhit or sneak into the city, he walks courageously and confidently towards the city that kills its prophets, as we saw earlier in our ACC class. However, along the way, Jesus takes time to gather all those that the Father has given him. Like the good shepherd he is, he is aware of his wayward sheep and he intends to bring them under his shelter and protection during his earthly ministry here. In Jericho, Jesus is looking for one man in particular. Now, it's interesting because the story, as we read it, we think of Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus, but it's really Jesus who is looking for Zacchaeus, as we will see. For he was the one who espied him or spied him or saw him in the tree and pointed him out. He's looking for one man in particular. And as we read this encounter, we see that in the sovereignty of God, the Father has providently placed this this man, this Zacchaeus, in the right place where Jesus can see him and will be noticed. We can also conclude that the Holy Spirit is at work in this man as he desires to see Jesus and he goes to great lengths, including humiliating himself by climbing up into a tree to get a glance at Jesus. Now, the second observation observation is the man himself, Zacchaeus. This man is famous to most biblical readers, toddlers, and anyone who has ever attended a Sunday school class. His account of meeting meeting Jesus is immortalized in the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man is he. And you are now singing it in your head, are you not? You know that song? Do you want to sing that song? Is that what you're saying? A wee little man was he. Luke introduces this surprising character and also the actions of Zacchaeus. What we see here as Luke records is that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, meaning he was a man that not many people loved. I doubt even his mother uh, struggled with having him over for dinner. He was wealthy because he stole. 
He was curious of Jesus. We're not, not sure, but he was curious of Jesus. He was short or vertically challenged. He was determined as he climbed up in a tree to get a peek, notwithstanding his position as a chief tax collector and, and an official. He was determined, I'm going to climb in that tree. Dr. Schreiner notes that the Roman would auction off the collection of individual taxes. Remember, uh, Israel at this time, as, rest of the, as, as the rest of the known world at that time, was under the Roman Empire, and they would collect taxes for their military, for their government, and so on. So the, the government would, did not have their own IRS system like you and I think of it. So they would auction off to people and say, who wants to collect the taxes, the tolls, and all the different taxes that we're going to put on the people? And people would then bid for it because it was a very high position. And in that, they would use that position to take more taxes than they were supposed to. They used it as a way of theft, hence why he was a rich person. So it's not surprising, uh, Dr. Schreiner notes, that he has become wealthy. It is well known that tax collectors skimmed money off the top to their own advantage. But as we move to verse 5, we see the surprising actions of Jesus knowing this. Now, you and I know this because Luke gave it to us. Jesus knows about Zacchaeus and who he was and his own heart because he created him. But let me see here in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, the tree where Zacchaeus was at, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So we see that Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him. How did he receive him? Joyfully. He purposely looked for Zacchaeus. He knew his name without having to be told. He did not say, hey, you up there in the tree, who are you? At least it's not given to us as that way. It seemed like it was a divine appointment. Jesus was in Jericho passing through so that he could see Zacchaeus. He then did something that you and I might think bold. He invited himself over to his house. Come on down because I'm going to your house today. And he pronounces it as a wonderful blessing of salvation, and as we're going to read a little bit later in this passage, he identifies Zacchaeus as one of his brothers, as a son of Abraham as well. He pronounces a blessing on a man that many would never even interact with. Of course, this always leads to the not surprising complaints of the crowd in verse 7. And when they saw it, they all what? Grumbled. They all complain. This seems to me just a, something that always happens. Saying he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. As usual, the crowd voices their displeasure at the choices of Jesus. This is a constant theme of the Gospels. No matter what or who Jesus ministered to, there was always someone who accuses him of wrongdoing. In this case, they didn't feel it was right for Jesus to interact with Zacchaeus, at least not friendly. They would prefer that Jesus condemn this man. In their estimation, Zacchaeus was an enemy. He was part of the Roman Empire, a collaborator that got rich off the hard work of others. He was a thief. In their mind, he was not a man that was worth eating with or even redeeming. But as we move on to verse 8, we read of the surprising response of Zacchaeus as Jesus interacts with him at his home. In verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood. 
And he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, we're not really told what's going on here, but all of a sudden, in the middle of this dinner, uh, Zacchaeus stands up. And now, I'm not sure. They may not even know he was standing as short as he was. They might have said, can you get back up? But he stands up and he says these things. We see a confession. He says, I've defrauded people. He says, I I know that I have done wrong. There's a humbleness. There's a willingness to be generous. He says, I'm going to give half of it to the poor. I I don't care how much I have. I'm not even going to check my bank account and check my investments and my assets. I'm just going to give half. And if I defrauded anyone, on top of that, I'm going to give back four times. I'm going to pay back restitution. What we're seeing here in Zacchaeus is there is something happening at that dinner that we're not totally privy to. He wants to see Jesus. Jesus wants to see him. They meet together for dinner and something miraculously happens that changes Zacchaeus' life. Now, all of these things I just mentioned are some of the characteristics of true repentance. Nothing is said of the conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus. This is not a Jesus and Nicodemus moment that we have in John 3 that we've been looking at in our ACC, our our classes at 945. Again, I want to encourage you to come to those. Those are wonderful classes. But whatever was taking place during that dinner, I'm going to use the phrase of Jesus in John 3, the wind blew. The Holy Spirit was also there with Christ working in the heart of this tax collector. Something was churning within him, transforming him. We see he was regenerated and converted. Interestingly, the response of this chief tax collector stands in stark contrast to the rich young man in chapter 18 that we read of several weeks ago. As you may recall, as if you're looking at that in chapter 18, you may call that the rich young man, he desired eternal life. Remember, what must I do to eternal life? I, I've done all these things that you're asking me. I've loved my neighbor. But sadly, he was unwilling to obey the commands of Jesus to give away all of his goods and to come and follow Christ. Dr. Schreiner notes, you can see it here on the, on the monitor there, that Becoming Jesus' disciples, because I don't want us to mistake what he's saying here, is that becoming Jesus' disciples does not necessarily mean one must give up everything one owns. But it does mean that riches are no longer one's treasure and that one gives generously to others. You've heard us say things like this nature before. But in 18, the rich young man desired his money more than Christ. That's the difference between these two encounters. While Zacchaeus was happy and filled with joy to surrender his ill-gotten gains and follow Jesus. Luke then, as we come near the end, then records of of the passage, not of the message, Luke then records Jesus' wonderful response both to the crowd and his grateful host in verse 9 and 10. Look at that with me. And Jesus, and this is where I want you to have your pens ready. 
your marker, whatever it may be. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is making a declaration is just what has happened as the wind blew. Since he also is a son of Abraham. Now underline this next phrase for this is very, very important. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. For the Son of Man, Jesus, has come to seek and save the lost. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur notes that the identification of Zacchaeus as a, as a, a son or a child of Abraham uh, was a, is a, it identifies a Jew who is a Jew by race for whom Christ came as Savior. Though there are many sons of Abraham, it is only those who are truly born again of the Spirit that are true sons of Abraham. What's amazing here is that even a wicked sinner, a despicable man like Zacchaeus, is savable. That, that's, the, that's the turning here. This is the strange, this is the kick. Zacchaeus, Jesus not only went to his house, talked with him, ate with him, but he's also now giving him a blessing, saving him, this man here himself. To his complainers and cricket, crickets, critics, Jesus declares that he is a unique mission that cannot be hindered by any other agenda. It does not matter what the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, or anyone else says, the zealous, the disciples, or anyone else who is, who is reading this or observing this moment in real time. Nothing can hinder the Son of Man from seeking out the lost and rescuing them from their sin. Amen? No one can keep Jesus from this most important task. So as we come to there, I want to think about three truths from this passage. Those are just some observations. What, what can you and I learn from this passage? It's, it's a good story. It's a, it's a famous uh, favorite uh, study school teaching lesson for kids. But what can we as adults hear? How is this profitable for us? Well, number one, the mission of Jesus is to find the lost and to rescue them from their sins. We need to gather that from here. The mission of Jesus is to find the lost and to rescue them from their sin and death. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, I don't know if you saw this, that when he saw him in the tree, he says, Zacchaeus, come down because I must stay. I don't know if you saw that. I must stay. Stay. It is important. I have no other uh, desire than to stay. It is appointed for me to, by the Father to stay at your house. He has a divine appointment that was set before the foundations of the world. Again, we're indebted to Professor Schreiner, who writes of Jesus' mission. Join with me as you look up here. He seeks the lost, just as a shepherd seeks for the lost sheep. The woman for the lost coin and the father for the lost son. We saw that in chapter 15 of Luke. He goes on to write that Jesus, is, uh, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, which includes tax collectors and sinners, sinful women, prodigal sons, poor men like Lazarus of several weeks ago, Samaritans, those dependent as children, and those who are blind. Jesus' mission is to seek out his sheep, and to gather him in as you and I make profession today. We too were like this tax collector. 
Earlier, Jesus responded to his cricket, critics. I don't know why crickets are in my mind, but his cricket, crit, critics. When they grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered him, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hence, why we must recognize and acknowledge and understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. See, this world doesn't understand that. They think they just need to lose weight. They think they just need a, a less stress. They think they just need a relationship coach or they need a better Instagram account. But in reality, what they need is a Savior to deliver them from the wrath of God, the penalty of sin, and the curse of death. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Zacchaeus was the very exact type of person Jesus was sent to visit. With the cross before him, Jesus takes the time to have dinner with a man whom society considers despicable. Pastor Tim Keller tweeted this out several weeks ago, that on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had done all the sinful things we have done. And when we believe in him, God treats us as if we have done all the righteous deeds he has. Let's stay, keep that up there just a moment. This is what you and I need to understand, his mission. Now, if you're like me, there are times that just looking in the mirror is difficult, watching yourself, making eye contact. Because we know what's in our hearts. Maybe even you this morning have struggled with your hearts. Sinful thoughts, anger, Bitterness, resentment could be a host of things. And you say, how in the world could God love me? How could God save me? But here, here's the thing. Is all of these most awful, most wicked things that you have done, he put those on Christ. And when we believe in him, when we are regenerated, he does not see that filth but he sees the righteous, wonderful works of Jesus Christ. And see, I want to share here with any of you here this morning, whether you're someone who has professed Christ or have not, is that you need to understand this is the very mission of Jesus. He's, he's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a moral example. He's more than just a glorified higher version of, of Mother Teresa or Gandhi. He's the very Son of God, the anointed one of the Lord, the one who will come and rule in righteousness, the one who will judge the world. You and I need to understand the mission of Christ. And so with that, we need to understand who God is, the one who created all things with just his word, let there be, and it was so. Out of nothing, he created all that there is, all things visible and invisible, all things in the earth, above the earth, and under the earth. Whether it is a physical form or whether it is supernatural, it is all of God's doing. 
And it created all of this that we may then look on him and then give him glory and that he would be the object of our admiration. However, you and I know that very soon after man and woman was created that they broke God's law. God created and owns everything. He is perfectly holy and he requires obedience to his law, perfect obedience. We must be perfect because he is perfect, but yet our first parents broke that law. And because of that, we have inherited that sin, that guilt. And we too, just like our first parents, will have to pay the eternal penalty for sin. The Bible tells us, for the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. And what we find in Scripture is that we cannot save ourselves by our good works. We cannot be good enough. All of our good works fall short of the glory of God. You can imagine a, a cliff. Uh, Brandon and his family were just at the, uh, the um, Grand Canyon. And I don't know how many of you have been there, but it's just immense. It's, it's beyond imagination. Sometimes when you see it, many times you can't even see to the other side. And that's really kind of a, a poor analogy of what it means is for me to do good works and to please God would mean that I would start on one side with run as fast as I can and then jump and try to make it to the other side. I could never do it. As a young man, I was a fan of Evil Knievel. I don't know how many might remember him or old enough to remember him. His goal was to always to jump over the Grand Canyon. He never got that opportunity, but he did get to do the Snake River and even then he failed. And he had this supercharged, well, Elon, um, uh, Elon Musk wasn't around. Maybe Elon Musk can make one. But, but even then, it always falls short. But yet we have all these religions that, that have added sacraments and traditions and all these other things to try to make you good enough. And let me tell you, you are never good enough. We will always fail. We cannot save ourselves. But you and I know that the solution was Jesus sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. He came to earth both as God and sinless man. And he demonstrated God's love by dying on the cross to pay sin's penalty and to earn our redemption. <clears throat> he rose from the grave and is alive today as we'll celebrate in, a, in about a month or so as we come up to the Easter time. And in this, this is what he's done. On that cross, God treated Jesus as if he had done all the sinful things we had done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as the sun went down for three hours? Jesus in agony is bearing the very wrath of God for what you did today in your own mind and heart. What you're going to do tomorrow. But in retrospect, he gave you a great exchange took your sins and when he says here and that God treats us if we have done all the righteous deeds he has done there is no good deeds all of our deeds are as filthy rags but yet when he looks on me when he looks on those who are truly his children he says I look on you as if I look on my precious son that's the wonderful gospel but you and I need to respond to the gospel Zacchaeus did Whatever the words were, whatever the actions with Jesus, he responded. We're going to look at what we need to do in a moment for that. So what we need to see is that Jesus came. His mission was to save sinners. Amen? He's finding the lost. As John Newton said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. The second thing that we need to understand, the truth that we can understand from this, 
is that no one is beyond the Trinity's ability to redeem and rescue. And I, I did not make a mistake. I didn't say the Father. I said the Trinity. You and I need to get back to a tritinary view of God. Too many times we think of God, the Father, we think of the Son. And then, you know, as non nons almost Baptist, we have the Spirit down here. But it's the Trinity. The Trinity. No one is beyond the ability of the Trinity to redeem. There is hope for even the most despicable, despisable, lost sinner. Jesus gives his disciples the answer to 18 verse 26 when they ask, who then can be saved? Remember he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They said, who can be saved? Remember Jesus' warning. When Jesus seen that he had become sad, speaking of the rich young man, he said, how difficult, 18 verse 24, if you want to look at it, you should be near there if you have your Bible. Disciple says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Or this is Jesus speaking. He says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is undoable. It is impossible for you and I to do that. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with God or with man, excuse me, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus shows that with God, anything is possible. And that's the wonderful truth of the gospel. No one is beyond God's reach. Doesn't matter how detestable Zacchaeus was, how loathsome his personality might have been, or how shameful his treachery in stealing from his fellow countrymen. Jesus saves. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Just consider some other of our heroes of the faith. Abraham was an idol worshiper when Jesus called him, when the Father called him. Moses and David both murdered a man. Peter denied Christ. Mark abandoned his mission. Paul refers to himself as the wretched sinner and the chiefest of sinners. There may be some of you here this morning that have struggled after a sinful bout or a bout with sin and falling into temptation. Can God save me? The news is yes. Most definitely yes. For what is impossible for you and I to do is possible with God. You and I were wretched sinners as well, yet God, in his great wisdom, chose us to be his children. Mired in sin, he reached out and pulled us up and pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of light. And not because of any merit of our own, but because of the great love with which he loved us. In our scripture reading earlier that Landon gave, Paul writes, you'll see it here back on the screen, that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So welcome the despised and the rejected of the world. For ours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Third. Our third truth is the transforming power of Christ in the life of a sinner. The transforming power of the life 
of a sinner. Zacchaeus just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus that day. We're not told why. We do not know if he understood who Jesus was. Maybe he heard of the miracles. Maybe he heard of his teaching. It might have been just simple curiosity. In any case, he got more than he anticipated as Jesus not only sees this man, eats with him, but he then transforms this man's heart. His actions, speaking of Zacchaeus, demonstrated the true regeneration conversion of those who respond in, uh, in uh, respond with faith and repentance. I want to show you this picture here. I do I have that up there? What you and I see here is conversion. He's regenerated, but in here when we see the transformation, we see a, a, a repentance and a, a what we call a conversion. Conversion is a, is a coin with two sides, repentance and faith. Faith and repentance are one act. It's a turning from sin, as you see there, in repentance, and turning to Christ in faith. You can see that kind of motion there. Both faith and repentance continue throughout life. Both, though, are a gift from God. We have defined faith in the past as a confident trust in the person of God. So there was a, a moment after, the, after Christ regenerated, the wind blew that Zacchaeus uh, had his faith in who Jesus was. His eyes were opened. But then we see that he also turned in repentance when he makes the statement about giving his money, about changing his life. Repentance, as you see here on the screen, is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of that sin, a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. That's what you're seeing here with Zacchaeus' statement. He is declaring his faith and repentance. He is proving or showing fruits of his true conversion of being regenerated. Now Zacchaeus' vow to pay restitution was a fruit of his salvation and in repentance, not a condition of it. Again, it's not that you give away and you do good works and then God honors you and returns the favor by giving you salvation. It's a fruit of one who's truly been born again. Repentance is undergirded by a spirit of humility. Pride is the original sin of Satan, of Adam and Eve, and so on and so forth. Our desire to be the boss leads us to a life of rebellion against our Creator. Until our hearts are humble, we can never reach God in repentance. The Holy Spirit teaches us throughout the Scriptures that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So as we consider these truths, as we must recognize that Jesus' mission is to come to rescue, to seek and save the lost. We see that no one is beyond his ability to rescue. But not only that, is that when Jesus rescues, it is, uh, there is a profound change in our hearts, in our behavior, in our way of thinking. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Pastor Eric Kahn writes that the surest sign of genuine revival in a person is always repentance. It could be about the central idols of the day. The magicians we see in Scripture burned their books publicly when they accepted Christ. Gideon burned his father's altar in public when, it came, when, he, when he sought revival. 
But as you and I turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is writing to this church. He had not spent a lot of time in this city. However, he is receiving wonderful news about the impact his short mission trip had there of starting a church there. In verse 8 of that chapter, Paul writes, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, these other areas out in your area, they're telling us of the impact you are having among them. We can see the change in your life. He says, but your faith in God, excuse me, has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report, uh, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. Two things there. What is true repentance? One who turns from serving idols and turns to the living God. And to wait for his son from heaven, to whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Repentance is true changing. J.C. Rolla, pastor, British pastor in the 19th century, marks that repentance is a thorough change of a person's natural heart upon the subject of sin. He writes, we are all born in sin. We naturally love sin. We know this. We, we agree with this. We take to sin as soon as we can act and think, just as the bird takes to flying and the fish takes to swimming. He says, there never was a child that required schooling or education in order to learn deceitfulness, selfishness, passion, self-will, gluttony, pride, and foolishness. Any parents want to say amen? Yes to that? I know the mom says that's your dad's fault, but it's not the case. They just know this. It's inherited. He goes and writes that these things are not picked up from bad companions, not that it can't be, or gradually learned by a long course of tedious instruction. They, they spring up, speaking of sinful tendencies. They spring up of themselves, even when boys and girls are brought up alone. The seeds of them are evidently the natural product of the heart, the evil, wicked heart. The aptitude of all children in these evil things is an unanswerable proof of the corruption and fall of man. So I should not have to, to, to debate you on that or to convince you of that. You can just see any two-year-old at the beginning of your service and you can very well know that there are some things going on. And I'm just joking on that part. Now when this heart of ours is changed, he goes on to write, by the Holy Spirit, when this natural love of sin is cast out, then takes place the change which the word of God calls repentance. There is the time when that becomes less strong. The person whom the change is created is said to repent. They may be called in one word a repented person. What you're getting here is a picture of a Messiah who not only seeks to save the lost, but you're also seeing a picture of one who is truly converted, one who has truly repented of a sin and put his faith in Christ. This is what you and I should emulate. We give glory and thanks and praise to the one who came and sought us, those who were once lost but now are found. But then we ought to shape our minds and hearts around a man who's demonstrated how you and I are to respond to that wonderful truth. Just as a side note, you've seen this before looking up here on the screen. As I've given you this before by J.C. Rowell, five marks of repentance. 
How do we know if we truly have repented? How as we, as those who share the gospel and disciple others, the shepherd, how can we know someone is truly converted? Someone is truly repented? How can we know our children have truly? Well, there's five. First, it begins with the knowledge of sin. They understand not that they understand sin. There is a true repentance produces a sorrow for it. There's a heartbreak with it. Uh, Costi Hinn writes that remorse is feeling sad because sin caught up with you. That's a worldly sorrow. That's a, I'm sorry. However, repentance is a broken heart that is eager to surrender. He says, take this from me. I no longer want this idol in my life. True repentance produces a confession of sin. You don't hide it. You don't say that, uh, that the, the, the bride, the, the woman you gave me did it. Or the woman who says that the, the Satan made me do it. But it also produces a breaking off from that sin. In other words, it doesn't mean that, that, that you never will sin again. But there is a sense in which you're breaking off. You are doing what you can. You are cutting off the hand and plucking out the eyes if necessary. To refrain from that sin. You're actively doing things to, to seek out the word of God and, and obeying him and his commands. And fifthly, true repentance produces a deep hatred of sin. You may fall to it, but like the dog who returns to the vomit, and you say, bad, that has a really bad aftertaste. I'm not doing that again. There's a sense in which you hate that which you once loved so much. This is what true repentance, that's what we're seeing here with Zacchaeus. <clears throat> Faith and repentance go hand in hand. Pastor Sam Storms, a pastor out of Oklahoma, I believe, he wrote this concerning repentance. We have it there, thank you. <clears throat> Here's why I want to get here, Christian. Because there's many of you... <clears throat> who say, Jesus saw me, he called me down, we have come together, we have supped together, we have eaten together, I have tasted and see that God is good and I have repented and put my trust in Christ. I am a Christian. But has your life been measured out over time through circumstances and consequences, despite those? Has it proven the point that you truly are? For he says, there is no holiness or Christian life that does not have repentance at its core. Repentance is not merely one element in conversion, but a habitual attitude and action to which all Christians are called. It is, in other words, that we're going to go to the next of it here in a moment, but it's not enough to say that Jesus died for my sins and paid for my sins in the past. We need to recognize that he's paid for today and tomorrow. That does not then mean that I can do what I want without any repercussions. For one who is truly a Christ, a Christ one, a Christ-like, a Christian, is one who will fight sin to the point of shedding blood. He goes on to write then, that next paragraph, are we there? The most important, thank you, Ben. The most important dimension in godly repentance is the fundamental alteration in one's thinking with regard to what is sin and what God requires of us in terms of both our thoughts and actions. Can you keep that up just for a moment? And this is where I want to get to the nitty-gritty. The rubber meets the road, so to speak. Brothers and sisters, is your life marked by this alteration? 
Is your life reflected of a life of holiness? Are you still holding on to bitterness and anger, malice? Are you speaking harshly to your wife, to your husband? Are you neglecting your children? Are you neglecting the word of God? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you serving in your church? Are you giving in your church? Are you being generous? Are you loving your neighbors? We all struggle in those following commands of Christ. However, our life must be marked by true repentance, a life of holiness. For that's what God came to save and rescue us from. Sometimes we're just drowning men who think we've been saved because we're just floating on something that's helping us keep afloat in the water. The one who is truly saved has his feet firmly on the ground of Jesus Christ, who not only saves us, but also transforms our lives. Let us live as Zacchaeus, giving thanks for what the Christ has done for us, that we too may have eternal life. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up. We're going to do something a little different. I'm going to help lead this song. This is a scary thought. But only because I want us to think of this song. Many times we sing our songs, and Brandon has done a wonderful job of bringing us really God-honoring songs. But in here, John chapter 14, verse 6, show this real quick here. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I pray that each and every one of you have done that this morning. If not... Please see Randy, Landon, and I, because we want to show you how you too can have eternal life. You'll never know how or when you will meet Jesus. But let me tell you, he's the one that's going to be calling you. Come down from going to your house today. And we need to share that with our family and friends. The great news, the wonderful news, the good news that Jesus saves. Amen? I'm going to give it time just for Ben to go ahead and switch this song. All I have is Christ. I want us to consider that rain. We're going to have you come up in just a moment after the song. We're going to have you close with prayer. Well, I've got one thing, and then you're going to pray. <clears throat> but I want us to think of this song, All I Have is Christ. And I want the song to have a more impact. Brian, you can go ahead and start. You can just go ahead and start when you're ready. Because I want you to think of these words as we're singing them what it means to have Christ. It ought to change our lives as we consider that he came to seek and save the lost. Ben, are you ready? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever-present in your life.